Welcome to episode 391 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with the great British music journalist and editor of Melody Maker magazine and founder and editor of Uncut magazine, as well as the author of a great memoir, highly acclaimed, published back in 2017, called Can't Stand Up from Falling Down, Rock and Roll War Stories. Mr. Alan Jones is on the program this week. Let's get to it. Episode 391 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Basilico. These days, I am not sure it is clear what one can trust. I was raised in a working-class neighborhood, very ethnically aware of itself. Lithuanian, Polish, Italian, Irish, Ukrainian, Russian, and a few more. There were also the several corresponding Christian and Jewish faiths that informed the community culture. People like their gardens, their beer and wine and tobacco, chewing and smoking. Outside tending to the azaleas and mums, lilacs and roses, black-eyed Susans and fruit trees, 
plums, apple, cherry, pear, chestnut, rectangle patches of turned over with pitchfork and raked even plots of string beans up tree branches fashioned from throwaways, sharpened and stuck in the dirt, and zucchini, tomatoes, winter garlic, spring parsley, and basilico next to a hole with eggshells, coffee grinds, fruit rinds, and vegetable peels, today called by the more formally educated a compost, the smell and feel of dew on leaves of grass, grape vines and wind chimes with the sound of a hammer on wood somewhere up the hill toward St. Anthony's Park, a dog bark which stirs a couple more, several houses down the road, over by the neighborhood newsstand and novelty store, talking later in the day over nickel cups of coffee on the front porch of Miggsy's about sports, local gossip, politics, and worldwide events. As a small plugged-in radio plays big band crooners and rock and roll boomers from decades back in time. The breeze blows nice and the sun shines fine while I watch a few clouds move by elegant and warm between the blinks of my vibrant eyes. This present into the future, how connected to that past, I wonder and surmise. And when, although I wasn't there, he said I was his friend, which came as some surprise. I spoke into his eyes, I thought you died alone.
Alan Jones, is that you? Yes, it is, Lawrence. Good huh. afternoon. Good afternoon. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And uh, I have a little bit of a cold, so if I sound stuffy, I want you to know why. Um, okay. Before we get started, I'd like to uh, share with the listeners a little background information, if you don't mind. Okay. Alan Jones is an award-winning British music journalist and editor. In 1974, he applied for a job on the UK's best-selling music paper as a junior reporter, signing off his application with, quote, Melody Maker needs a bullet up the arse. I'm the gun. Pull the trigger. He was editor of Melody Maker from 1984 to 1997. Alan started renowned music and film magazine Uncut in 1977 and was its editor until 2014. He wrote a popular monthly column called Stop Me If You've Heard This One Before, based on his experiences as a music journalist in the 1970s and 80s. Mr. Jones wrote the highly acclaimed book published in 2017 titled Can't Stand Up From Falling Down, Rock and Roll War Stories. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Alan Jones. So, how are you today? I'm good, thank you, Lawrence. Uh, I guess, why don't we start at the beginning, as they say. Uh, tell us a bit about your background. You know, How did you get from where you started to where you are today? Okay, well, uh, as briefly as I can, I grew up in a, a small town in South Wales. It was a steel town called Port Talbot. Uh, not a lot happened there. It seemed very remote from the things that were happening in the world at large. And from an early age, my principal ambition was to, to get out. Um, music at that time became very important to me. I started listening to, to, to music, I guess, in about 64, 65. Uh, like a lot of people of my generation grew up really on um, the, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, Small Faces. Um, that was what I was listening to mostly in 65 and then 66 started to get into love the doors birds 67 was a glorious year um, you know discovered the velvet underground uh, which was a you know an amazing thing to, to come across um, I, I was already a big music fan reading the the music weeklies there are about six of them in the UK at the time uh, I got most of them melody maker became my preferred uh, music Weekly, um, so I started collecting records. Uh, uh, anything I, I just I was open to anything and and just loved most of what I heard. Uh, and then in uh, late 1967, I saw Jimi Hendrix in concert, and really from that moment on, I think I became what Neil Young later described as a, a prisoner of rock and roll. Uh, it had never been my ambition to write about music in any way. Um, to get out of Port Talbot, uh, I applied to art school. Uh, although I was only 16, uh, I managed to get a place. Um, so I, I went to art school in South Wales. I was there for four years. Then in 1973, moved to London, hoping to get work as an illustrator, uh, but ended up, unfortunately, on the uh, dole. Um, I found a job, finally, in a, a mail order department of a bookshop in Piccadilly. Uh, where I was just mentally unraveling. Uh, the work was pretty boring. And one afternoon, um, 
my girlfriend saw uh, an advert in uh, the London listing magazine Time Out and it said that Melody Maker was looking for a new writer. Um, normally I wouldn't have paid much attention to it because I, I roughly knew that uh, a music paper like Melody Maker, which at the time was selling something like 250,000 copies a week, it was the biggest music weekly in the world, uh, they usually recruited from uh, local papers, uh, provincial uh, papers, uh, where journalists might have ended up writing the entertainment columns or the album reviews column. Um, but they would, you know, they would recruit from trained journalists. But what really stood out uh, in this ad, um, that they were, that there were three qualifications. They were looking for somebody who was under 21, which I was at the time, uh, who was highly opinionated about music, which I definitely was, and really quite crucially, it said that no previous journalistic experience was necessary, which was what I wanted to hear, because I had none. Uh, but at the time, I had nothing to lose, really. Uh, so I applied for the job, um, got an interview, and um, then I was offered the, the, the job as the uh, junior reporter on Melody Maker, which was a completely unexpected turn of events. Uh, how, how much do you think uh, the way you ended your application had to do with it? I think it caught their attention, which was obviously <laughs> the point of it. Um, uh, I didn't. Ha I, I imagine that uh, you know that there would be hundreds of, of people applying for that job. It was you know a really you know kind of plum job, really. There's no getting around it. Um, so I imagined all these uh, young reporters with you know some years of experience um, putting together. Uh, you know, packages of their, their reviews, things that had been printed, you know, just as, as examples of their writing. Uh, I didn't have any published work to send in. Uh, so I thought you know, I, I should just sit down, write a letter introducing myself, give, giving uh, Melody Maker some of the same background I just gave you about where I grew up, the kind of music I was listening to, how important Melody Maker had been in influencing my taste, pointing me in the direction of a lot of great music. Uh, but around that time, um, much as I still loved Melody Maker, I sensed that it had grown rather stale. Um, its uh, principal competi competition was the New Musical Express, uh, which as a title had been historically uh, quite inferior journalistically to Melody Maker, uh, to the extent that its sales had suffered badly uh, as Melody Maker's sales rose inexorably. Um, but about a year before I, I joined Melody Maker, maybe 18 months or so, Enemy had been given six months to improve its sales or its publishers were just going to close it. And they had the brilliant idea of employing um, writers, not in the traditional way that Melody Maker did, uh, but recruiting writers from the London Underground press. And there were two or three of them that really stood out, Nick Kent and Charles Shaw Murray and uh, a guy called Ian MacDonald. Um, and their writing was fresh, it was opinionated, it was quite controversial, um, it, was, it, was, it was hip in a way that the writing on Melody Maker certainly wasn't at that time. And it proved to be a successful formula for them. Uh, so I needed to establish with Melody Maker that as a fan, uh, I'd read it for years, but it lately become disenchanted. Uh, it, it seemed very conservative. It, its choice of, of, of music to cover uh, was still um, so deeply uh, steeped in prog rock. Uh, 
you couldn't uh, open an issue of Melody Maker without reading acres of, of space on Yes, Pink Floyd, Genesis, Green Slade. I, I mean, it was stiflingly awful as far as I was concerned. I mean, I love the Stooges, the Velvet Underground, the Stones, uh, New York Dolls, Roxy Music, Bowie. Um, you you found those artists covered in, in Melody Maker, but there was a stuffiness about the atmosphere that was almost suffocating. So I, I just wanted to really say that uh, I, I felt I could bring something to, to Melody Maker that it at that moment lacked, which was incred incredibly arrogant because I'd never written before. But I, I really felt if I was going to make any impression, it had to be, you know, a, a little extreme perhaps. So I, I came up with that uh, payoff line and, you know, just stuffed the letter into an envelope and posted it before I had a chance to change my mind. I was worried that it might come over as, as just completely um, arrogant. Right. Um, but I, I think they, 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 they seemed to sense that it was going to be worth talking to me. So I was invited along for the interview. And again, that line is, Melody Maker needs a bullet up the arse. I'm the gun, pull the trigger. And what were you, 19? Uh, I was 21 at the time. 21. So yeah, you're a kid and you have the chutzpah to do that, so to speak. <clears throat> and it worked. So <laughs> great job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then while you were at Mel you, so you got the job and you were a junior uh, reporter, I guess. You started off. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I was so close to the bottom of the totem pole, I was actually underground as part of the foundations. Uh, and I'd only been interviewed um, by Melody Maker's editor, Ray Coleman. Um, so I hadn't met any of the other staff. Um, so I just turned up for my first uh, day at work uh, to be met with a, a, a pretty fair degree of suspicion. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an assistant editor there called Michael Watts. Uh, and he he seemed to think that I just conray into giving me a job for for for, for no obvious reason. Uh, um, he didn't think I was going to be along. I think on my first day there, he said he'd be surprised if I I I lasted six months, uh, mainly due to my lack of experience. Um, so I realised you know I, I had to convince people that I was serious about the job. Um, and that whatever small talent I had as a writer needed to be developed very quickly. So I just wrote about anybody uh, that, I, that I was told to write about, um, which was a blessing for the rest of the staff because I got the assignments that they would have preferred to have avoided. Uh, I did a lot, you know, just kind of chart fodder stuff, Gary Glitter, the Rubettes, Bay City Rollers. Um, anybody was in the charts at the time, I got got sent to do but it was great training um I, I i wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and then i got a big break uh when i interviewed leonard cohen mm. and um that that seemed uh that one piece really was, was a bit of a turning point um i i wrote it up handed it in and they really liked it. Uh, although the circumstances of doing the Leonard Cohen uh, interview were a bit risky, I happened to be in the office on my own one afternoon, and, and Mick Watts' phone kept ringing, and it was somebody trying to get in touch with him uh, about an interview that he'd been trying to set up for months with Leonard Cohen. Uh, and that, that it was CBS Records, and they were phoning to say that uh, Cohen was in London, and he could see Mick the next morning at 10 o'clock at a hotel in Chelsea. 
Uh, Mick didn't come back to the office that afternoon, and to be honest, I didn't make much uh, of a, uh, an effort to get in touch with him because I decided that I was going to turn up and do the interview myself, which I did. Uh, Mick was predictably furious when he found out about it, but I said, you know, he, he hadn't been around, I didn't have his phone number, couldn't get in contact with him, I didn't think we should lose the interview, so I'd gone along and done it. Uh, anyway, it got, it got printed, and, and, and Mick took me a little more seriously after that, and uh, uh, that's when I started, um, you know, the, I think my next assignment was Brian Ferry, then they sent me to Paris to do Frank Zappa, uh, so it all started happening in a big way then. And what did you, I mean, did you uh, strike up any rapport with these folks, or were you very much just uh, sticking to your responsibility as a journalist? You know, how, how did how did the uh, interactions go with with uh, Mr. Cohen and Mr. Ferry and, and, and so on? Frank Zappa. Well, w with Brian Ferry, I, I immediately had a rapport with him because of my art school background. Um, he wasn't used to um, meeting melody maker writers who could talk to him about you know, Richard Hamilton or Richard Lindner. Um, we, we, we got on, you know, really, really well. Um, he felt, you know, you know I, I was at ease talking to him about the fine arts as well as music. Uh, so that was a great plus. And I, I very quickly became, I guess, Melody Maker's um, unofficial Roxy Music correspondent. Um, they were the first band I went on the road with. Um, I interviewed Phil Manzanera, Andy McKay, um, various bass players who travelled through the group when they ended up making solo albums of their own. Um, it's, it was always difficult. I, I remained friendly with, with Ferry for, for years. You know, if he had a new album out, I usually did the interview with him or if he was on tour, I'd go on, maybe on a few dates, do another interview with him there. I was in the studio when he was recording In Your Mind his 1977 solo album. Um, there were very few people uh, at, at that point that uh, I became you know, friendly with. I, I always thought there should be some distance between the journalist and subject. Uh, but, but often, you know, you, with Leonard Cohen, for instance, you know, we were talking about literature uh, as much as songwriting uh, and traditions of lamentation in the Jewish uh, literary tradition. And, um, he seemed to, 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 you know, without being so, totally self-regarding, he seemed to think my line of questioning was perhaps a bit fresher and a, a, a bit more idiosyncratic than the uh, kind of journalists he usually met for interviews. Yeah, that's always a nice, uh, nice sort of, uh, I guess, respect to to feel from someone you're talking with. And uh, right now, I want to remind you who we're talking with. Mr. Alan Jones, he um, is a very highly regarded, award-winning British music journalist and editor, among many other things. Now, when you were in art school, what did you study? I'm curious. Anything in particular or just... Uh, yeah, that, uh, fine art uh, painting, uh, although um, I, I, I mostly drew uh, with a rapidograph pen and ink drawings, very detailed. Uh, sometimes large scale. It would take me ages to, to do a... Um, to complete a drawing, uh, which became a hindrance when I got freelance work, uh, and they wanted, you know, the, the client might want something turned around in, in a matter of days, so I would have to stay up for you know nights on end getting it done. Uh, in my final year, though, I concentrated mostly on film, 
uh, and uh, th that's what I, re I really, really wanted to, to, to get more and more involved in film. Uh, but that didn't happen. I had a, an interview with the uh, Royal College of Art Film Department. Uh, I was invited there by um, the um, exterior assessor who came down to uh, Newport uh, to uh, go through our graduation work. And he was very taken by a couple of short films that I'd made. Uh, so he invited me along for the for an interview. Unfortunately, he wasn't there, and I got into a bit of an argument with the um, the other lecturers who were interviewing me uh, when I told them that my favourite director was Sam Peckinpah, um, and they they really hated the Wild Bunch and Cross of Iron and Ride the High Country. Uh, and when I told them that my other favourite director was John Ford, um, they they were even more appalled for some reason. I don't know who they thought I should be into as a filmmaker, but it went really badly the interview, uh, and I just stormed out at the end. But you did get to uh, focus on film uh, more so when you started Uncut Magazine, I guess. That... Uh, well, yes, well, it, 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 my two, my, my twin passions really were uh, cinema and music. So, you know, by the time I came to uh, launch Uncut, I, I, Uncut originally I envisaged as uh, uh, just a film magazine. Uh, but there were problems over that. The publishers weren't as cut comfortable as deal, uh, dealing with uh, film content as they were with music, which was, you know, what they traditionally published was music papers rather than film magazines. Uh, so there was always a kind of tension between the two. And uh, shortly before Uncut uh, was going to launch, uh, we found that the, there were two other publishing companies who were launching film titles that, from the information we received, were very similar to Uncut, which turned out to be not the case, but it caused us to um, revise our, our ideas. In fact, uh, we, we were a week away from uh, completing the dummy issue, which would be sent out for research purposes to find, you know, to, to gauge a reaction to it from potential readers. And this news broke that the two other film titles, and I was told that. The, the, the magazine, which was already called Uncut, uh, wouldn't go ahead. Um, so I was, you know, pretty depressed about that. Uh, after putting so much work into it over a you know, period of about nine months, um, but I, the, the uh, publishing director or the editorial director I was working with um, told me not to despair, rethink the basic idea. Uh, he was going away for a week. Uh, he said, you, you still got the week in the room that they uh, put aside for me to, to work on the dummy. I uh, said, you know, just rethink it. See what you can rescue from it. Uh, so I came home that night. And to be honest, uh, towards the end of my time on Melody Maker, I'd become pretty disillusioned with a lot of music that was coming out. It was the time of Britpop, which I, I loathed. Um, and it, it seemed the more we covered Britpop in Melody Maker, the more readers we were losing. They, you know, they weren't happy with that, that direction. And they wouldn't listen to you when you said this isn't working for the magazine? No, they, they said, you know, Oasis is selling, you know, thousands of records a week. Blur is selling thousands of records a week. You know, this is the happening stuff. Uh, but uh, previously, you know, we, we'd been a lot more iconoclastic on Melody Maker about the kind of music that we were covering. 
and readers missed that. It, it was too predictable for us to, you know, have Oasis on the cover week after week. At a time when they were so ubiquitously prominent in the British press, from national newspapers uh, to, the, to, the, to the music weeklies, they were everywhere. You couldn't escape them. And it was the same old stuff that they were, you know, kind of churning out. Um, so, as, as I said, it, I came up with the idea of a film magazine to get away from uh, having to cover that kind of music that was prevalent at the time. But I thought when I got home that night, I thought, you know, I, I'm not that disillusioned with music. I'm playing Bob Dylan, I, you know, I'm playing some Lou Reed, some Velvet, some John Cale, um, some R.E.M. And I thought, OK, well, well maybe we could make it a, a music and movie magazine. Uh, so I drew up a, you know, two lists of, uh, you know, iconic filmmakers, iconic bands. And, uh, you know, so, so there were, I was seeking equivalency between the two. So I'd make a list and I'd write down Scorsese's name, you know, opposite The Stones or Springsteen opposite Peckinpah. And I could see connections. And you get to a certain age where, you know, you, your interest in, in, in both subjects is equally deep. And I thought, you know, there'd be a lot of uh, people of my own age. I was then in my kind of late 40s, I guess, mid to late 40s. Um, and I thought there was going to be plenty of people who share the same interests. And so it turned out. I, I, I went back in on, on the Monday. We'd heard the news about not going ahead with Uncut on the Friday. Over the weekend, I worked up a new plan. And uh, working with... Um, my art editor, we produced a, a, a brand new 164-page dummy in a week, um, and uh, it, it included music. We put Neil Young on the cover, um, and I wrote a piece about the, the Doom trilogy, uh, Tonight's the Night, um, and On the Beach, and uh, Time Fades Away. And it all seemed to sit very well, you know, these features on, 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 on different uh, directors, you know, uh, uh, actors. Uh, we put in some fiction there. Uh, um, I, I think I conjured up a piece on, on the American writer Thomas McGuane, who uh, co-written songs with Warren Zevon and also written uh, screenplays for, for, uh, for movies featuring Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando. I, I, it all kind of hung together, and the publishers got it. Uh, they said, "Yeah, this is this is what we can go ahead with this." Uh, so it went. Uh, we completed the dummy. It went into very quick research, got a positive reaction to it, and we launched. I think six or seven weeks after to the day after we completed the the original dummy. Excellent. And it's still, was that a weekly as well, or is that a monthly? Oh, no, that was a, a, a very glossy, uh, high production value uh, monthly. Monthly. And it's still going? It is still going. It's still very successful, I'm glad to say. And and uh, you had um, a column, I guess, was it in Uncut, that uh, had you reflecting on, on uh, some of the experiences you had in the 70s and 80s? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, as we were coming into the final week of production on the very first issue of Uncut, the, the thorny subject of an editor's letter came up. Uh, and usually that, that, you know, it's something that appears on, say, page three and is a substitute for um, information that you would get in a, in a, a contents page. Um, they're usually fairly anodyne. Welcome to the, you know, the new issue of whatever magazine the editor happens to be editing. Uh, and is full of homilies, you know, 
quite insubstantial. And I thought, you know, it's going to be a you know, bit of a chore to write this. And um, I was talking to uh, a guy called Alan Lewis, who uh, had previously been on Melody Maker prior to my appearance there. And he latterly became, uh, then became editor of uh, the um, British Music Weekly Sounds. Uh, and had returned to uh, IPC in a, in a, as director, uh, editorial director, and he was a re really bright guy. And um, I was talking to him about it and how uncomfortable I felt. He said, you know, forget about the traditional way of writing these letters. What you should do is find a way to write up some of the stories that you're always regaling us with in the pub about being on the road with, you know, Roxy Music, Sex Pistols, The Clash, uh, Boomtown Rant. Selvis Costello, Rockpile, Nick Lowe. He said, you know, they're hilarious. Um, why, don't, why don't you try to write up some of these anecdotes? And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. Um, and so I did the first column and I decided to call it uh, Stop Me If You've Heard This One Before. And basically I revisited uh, features that I'd originally written for Melody Maker. Um, and there was, a, a, there was about, you know, four or five years I, I, when I was never off the road. I was always, you know, flying to America, uh, touring Europe with a band, Australia, India, Egypt, Greece, uh, just went all over the world. Uh, and so I'd accumulated a store of anecdotes and uh, I didn't need much more encouragement than a pint in front of me and a cigarette in my hand to, you know, hopefully entertain whoever I was sitting with around a pub table. And the, uh, the, the column um, suddenly took on a life of its own in uh, regular research that we were running at the time. It was always one of the most popular features in, in the magazine. And it, it uh, eventually ran for the entire 17 years that I was on Uncap. Yeah. And um, I, when I retired, I, I, I happened to run into somebody at a gig um, who said he was surprised that I hadn't put out some kind of book. But I... I I'd really no great interest in writing a, you know, a biography or, of even the you know the artist that, that I most love. I mean, um, nobody needs another book on Bob Dylan. Um, you know, there are plenty of really great ones out there. So I, I didn't want to contribute to the general static, really. Um, but th th this guy w w was really keen. And he said, you know, we'd love if you could, you know, revisit that that the Stop Me stories that that you wrote uh, so often. We, you know, he said he particularly loved them. Um, so I went away and and, and uh, revisited a few of them, uh, brought them up to date, tidied them up, uh, elaborated on them uh, when necessary, and uh, sent them off to him. And he secured me the deal with Bloomsbury for the book. Yeah, Can't Stand Up From Falling Down, published in 2017. Rock and yeah. Roll War Stories. Now, is, correct me, I'm sure you will, if I'm wrong, as you should. Is that a lyric from an Elvis Costello song? Um, it's um, uh, it, it's from um, a Simon Dave song, which Elvis covered. Ah, gotcha. On, uh, Get Happy. That's I heard Elvis do it, just like a lot of people think... Uh, What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding is his, but it's really uh, Nick Lowe, right? It's Nick. Yeah. It's Nick Lowe, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. recorded uh, by uh, Nick's band, uh, Brinsley Swartz, and produced by Dave Edmonds. 
Um, the wealth of knowledge and experience you have, Mr. Jones, is, is uh, fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. And uh, it's nice to have you on the show. We, we have uh, a little bit more time left. We'll, ex- we'll extend it since we have such a, an interesting person on this week. Uh, I want to I get to the, the book. If people want to um, uh, get a copy of it, I guess they can find it at all the regular locales, right? Uh, Amazon or what have you. Can't Stand Up From Falling Down, Rock and Roll War Stories by Alan Jones. Yeah, it's available uh, by Amazon as well. And, you know, reflecting on, on uh, all, all of what you experienced uh, a bit, who were some of the people you really fancied, and they don't have to be anybody that we'd even know, but over the years having a drink and a conversation with? Oh, um, okay, uh, quick list. Uh, let's see. Uh, Joe Strummer, John Cale, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, uh, David Bowie. Uh, I would have loved to have spent um, a little more time with Landon Cohen. Um, Ray Davis, I, I love meeting. Uh, Neil Young. Uh, one of my favourite interviews was uh, with Paul Simon, who I did in, I think, about 2012. I flew to Washington to do him, and he was an amazing interview. Uh, he answered every question I asked in the most incredible detail. Um, I thought he was going to be kind of starchy and a bit distanced, but he, he was a lovely, really funny guy. Um, I think of all the people uh, that I met who kind of left the most lasting impression and I enjoyed being with the most was Lou Reed. Yeah, when you and I are, the way we met basically is uh, Facebook, uh, and, and I notice that the photo you use for your Facebook page is you and Lou Reed. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. It was taken backstage in uh, um, Philadelphia at the, the Tower Theatre, I think. Why why, did, why uh, Lou Reed? Why was he such an interesting fellow? Oh, oh well, the, the Velvet Underground's first album uh, made probably more impression on me than anything else I, I, I listened to in those years. I was absolutely besotted by it. Um, the Velvet Underground, you know, were my favourite band. Uh, I loved Lou's solo albums, uh, especially Berlin. Um, and I interviewed him uh, at a time when uh, he was probably most notorious for his complete hatred of journalists. But somehow um, I just hit it off with him. And uh, despite his fearsome reputation, I, I have to say he was just one of the warmest, certainly the funniest person I, I've ever met. Um, he had, you know, he great, like, his wit was scabrous, he was fierce, but, you know, by God, he could make you laugh. And he was just endlessly fascinating. Um, when I went on, he invited me uh, after the interview to go on tour with him in Europe. Uh, so I went to Sweden, and one afternoon he dragged me off to a, a kind of record company lunch, which he wasn't very much looking forward to, but we got through it. And after everybody uh, left, we stayed at the table and he ordered a bottle of brandy. And he basically had nothing to do uh, until that night's show. Uh, so I had him for my, to myself, really, for about three or four hours. Uh, although I didn't have a tape recorder with me, and I, I didn't want to turn what was uh, actually just a, yeah, a conversation in, into a, a formal interview, because I thought he might become a bit more guarded. Um, but it was great, just a wealth of stories about Andy Warhol, the factory, uh, touring with the original Velvet Underground, 
I mean, it was, you know, it was just a fantastic experience. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And I, I am a big fan as well of Lou Reed. And over the last year, I've had the the privilege of talking with two men who, who had somewhat of a, a connection with him, yourself and uh, Legs McNeil. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of Legs. And his oh, book. yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, he, he loved Lou as well. Uh, but thank you for sharing these insights and stories. I want to wrap up if, if uh, I really don't want to wrap up, but we need to wrap up. I want, <laughs> I want to ask you about... Um, you're, you're, I guess, in London now. We're outside of London. Yeah, I live in southwest London, a place called Twickenham. And and being there at this point in time in our you know world, uh, looking at understanding culture, you know, for, firsthand being involved and, and interested in, in uh, human culture. What, what, where, where are we, and where are we going in, in your sense of, of things? Blimey. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I, I do feel that at such a remove from what's happening in the, the music scene. I mean, I, I don't really recognize it. You know there's still a music industry out there, but it's like an invisible city. You can't really see it. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even pretend to keep up on you know current trends in music. I, I, I listen to either the music that I was listening to 40 years ago or music that in, in most cases sounds like it could have been made then. So you're still putting on the old, you know, albums that you've had, you've had for years, listening to those. They never, they never get old really. Uh, no, they don't. And, and what about just culturally speaking? Are you happy with, uh, you know, your own, uh, the tendencies in your own uh, city, your own country and, and what you're seeing outside in the larger world? Well, no, it's a, it's a pretty bleak and desperate time, really. Um, you know, we've got COVID-19 rampant everywhere. Um, what's preoccupying me a lot at the moment is, uh, <laughs> from a distance, admittedly, is the, you know, the American election and the, the fear of Trump getting another four years or refusing to go when I hope Biden whips his bloody arse. Uh, I hear you and I'm with you. And uh, interestingly enough, where I'm calling you from is, is his hometown, you know, of Scranton. That's where we, you know, our show is based, uh, you know, where, I, where I'm based at least. Uh, so uh, he, uh, he's, he's definitely the choice for us here for many reasons, not just the fact that he's a hometown boy. He's, yeah, yeah Trump, I mean, the thing about Trump is he, he compels some people to, to uh, seem... To believe that he is the, the the man who could solve our problems, people like Johnny Rotten supports Trump. I I saw recently. What do you make of that? Well, I, I, the, that's what I was was at the back of my mind. You you know you you, you might expect some uh, kind of hardcore you know right wing hillbilly to, to to believe in Trump, but where's the logic in somebody like Johnny Rotten uh, or John Lydon? Um, supporting trump and saying that you know he feels he has no choice but but to vote for him i, I mean rotten has always been a, a celebrated contrarian but there's a difference between being a contrarian and being a complete jackass and you know i i wonder by what logic um Leiden can to any extent defend trump or any of his views or policies uh, i mean it's quite insane but at the same time um Leiden was a, a supporter of Brexit, which is, you know, basically a, a, a 
capitalist-driven xenophobia to, to, to take Britain out of the European Union, uh, which is run, which is just a, you know, a, a populist and racist policies uh, attached to uh, a lot of the people who were Brexit supporters. And the other thing is that, you know, Leiden is, a, is as much a narcissist as Trump. Um, and he thinks he's being, you know, very individual and independent-minded um, by supporting Trump. But uh, you, you have to wonder, you know, what on earth he's thinking. But th there was always a kind of misanthropy and um, a, a, a kind of malice attached to, to, to Leiden, you know, in, in his previous existence, as Johnny Rotten especially. Um, there's a big difference between him and, say, uh, somebody like Joe Strummer, I mean, Strummer is, you know, is much loved these days, not just because he died young with his kind of legend intact or untarnished, but, you know, because he just genuinely gave a damn about people who really cared uh, in ways I think that Leiden never really has. Wonderful, wonderful comparison. Thank you. And uh, lastly, and you probably will hate this, uh, uh, you probably feel it's too presumptuous for you to respond to something like that, but it helps. People like to hear, you know, something from anybody, a fellow human. What, what would you say to help people through these bleak times? Oh, I, I quote Neil Young, keep on rocking in the free world. <laughs> Excellent. Alan Jones, a pleasure to talk with you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I hope we have an opportunity to do it again sometime soon. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Bye. Bye.
statistics as compiled by Harper's Magazine for their Harper's Index, a regular installment in this wonderful magazine. This one's from the October 2020 edition. Here we go. Percentage of registered U.S. voters who said in 2016 they would consider moving to Canada if Donald Trump were elected, 28%. Number of Americans who have done so since then, 33,965. Minimum number of recording artists who have sent cease and desist letters to the Trump campaign for using their music at rallies, 9 Percentage change in the win rate of professional soccer teams playing at home when the stadium is empty, negative 23%. And the penalty rate, positive 21%. Factor by which white players are more likely than black players to be praised for their hard work on European soccer broadcasts, 1.5 by which black players are more likely to be praised for their strength, a factor of 6.6. Estimated number of Americans who have participated in Black Lives Matter protests this year, 15 million. Percentage by which the annual number of people killed by U.S. police officers has fallen in rural areas since 2013, 29% by which it has increased in urban areas, 33%. Minimum number of trademark applications for Black Lives Matter that were filed following George Floyd's death, 26 applications. That had been filed over the previous five years, 18 applications. Portion of white Americans who say the benefits of experimental medical treatments outweigh the risks, two-thirds. Of black Americans who say the risks outweigh the benefits, two-thirds. Some dreams are made for children. I'm Fort Martas.
fog moves through the mid-autumn colors in plume, like a peacock of spectacular nature and tune, despite how we men and women wander within it, looking for home as we feed each other dispossessed notions of gloom. Episode 391 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Mr. Alan Jones. I also would like to thank Harper's Magazine and these musical artists. Stefan Grappelli, Django Reinhardt, Bob Dylan, David Bowie. The Velvet Underground, Joe Strummer, Amy Winehouse, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go 
and try to do our best with this time. Take care.